Welcome back to First Words with First Farragut United Methodist Church. Thanks for joining us. Our current sermon series is entitled Face to Face, requiring us to confront Jesus through his encounters with various characters in the Gospel of Luke. Today, through Jesus' encounter with the Sadducees, we'll learn about the riddle of resurrection. Reverend Martha Scott shares from Luke 20, verses 27 through 38. There we go. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading comes from the 20th chapter of Luke, verses 27 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. The Sadducees did not believe that people would rise to life after death. Some of them came to Jesus and said, Teacher, Moses wrote that if a married man dies and has no children, his brother should marry the widow. Their first son would then be thought of as the son of a dead brother. There were once seven brothers. The first one married but died without having any children. The second one married his brother's widow, and he also died without having any children. The same thing happened to the third one. Finally, all seven brothers married this woman and died without having any children. At last, the woman died. When God raises people from death, whose life will this woman be, whose wife will this woman be? All seven brothers had married her. Jesus answered, the people in this world get married, but in the future world, no one who is worthy to rise from death will either marry or die. They will be like the angels and will be God's children because they have been raised to life. In the story about the burning bush, Moses clearly shows that people will live again. He said, the Lord is... The Lord is the God worshipped by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the Lord isn't the God of the dead, but of the living. This means that everyone is alive as far as God is concerned. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Rather confusing scripture, huh? We're going to have a little fun with it, I hope. What would you do if you came face to face with Jesus? That's the title and the, and the theme of our uh, sermon series that we began last week. And, and to be fair, we're, we're, look, we're looking at some interactions that Jesus had with people in a couple of sections in the Gospel of Luke. Now, to be honest, Jesus had many, many, many interactions with people throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the portion of the Bible that tells the, the biography of Jesus. There are so many interactions, in fact, we could, look, we could look at one of them every Sunday of the whole year and not get through all of them. So we're only looking at four examples, but the goal of this is to ask ourselves, what would we do if we came face to face with Jesus? In each of these stories, we're asking with whom in the story can we most identify? Are we the person or the persons who approach Jesus or the person or persons whom Jesus approaches? 
Are we the one to whom Jesus directs his words or his teachings? Are we the person asking a question of Jesus? Are we Jesus, perhaps, or standing next to Jesus, being the one offering love and, and hospitality and, and graciousness to a person who has some questions or challenges? Or are we the ones looking on rather skeptically in the whole situation, trying to figure out what it is Jesus is saying, what he's up to? Who are we in those scenes? Approaching Scripture that way is a great way to learn and to experience God's Holy Spirit. Now, it is November 6th. I realize we are in our 11th month of this year, and we began this year with a challenge to begin reading Scripture daily, or if you already do read Scripture daily, then going a little deeper. We called it God's Story, Our Story, and there are two options. I think we have it somewhere. Two options in our God story, our story reading plans. One, you can read through the whole Bible, which is a little daunting, right? And then there is another that you can read some shorter uh, snippets, sections of scripture through a Bible Gateway app. I'm trying to do both of those. And let me just tell you, I've kind of slacked a little bit. And I'm sure if you are one of those who started it, you've probably hit a few bumps in the road too. It's November 6th, get right back at it. It doesn't matter when you start. It's just a matter of getting into the scriptures and, and, and allowing God to speak to us. And a good way to engage with Scripture is asking these kinds of questions. So that's one of the reasons we're doing this series is so that you can learn how to read and place yourself in Scripture as well. Anytime we open God's inspired word, we open our hearts and our minds to receive from God. Using this interaction, this game I call it, of, of interacting with Scripture this way is a great way to do it. So what would we do, what would I do, what would you do if you came face to face with Jesus? Well, last week we started this journey with a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. I didn't sing it last week and I'm not going to sing it this week. I don't sing. I have the gift of gab only. But in Zacchaeus' story, he, he didn't, as far as we can tell, we, he, Zacchaeus did not approach Jesus with an actual question. He basically just wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. Zacchaeus, we learned, was a tax collector, which meant he was despised by all the people. And what he found, just trying to get a glimpse of Jesus, was love and acceptance from Jesus when the crowd hated him. But there's no evidence whatsoever in the story of Zacchaeus that Zacchaeus actually approached with a question. He just wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus. But in today's scripture, there is a question. A deep question. A question that's actually posed more as a riddle to Jesus than an actual direct question. A riddle is a question or a statement that's intentionally phrased to challenge us. I'm not good at riddles. People tell me riddles and I just walk away. But riddles are those things that make you think. They, they, in some, some ways they, they challenge us and they trick us. And a lot, a lot of times when we find the answer to the riddle, our response is, well, duh, I knew that. For example, what do other people use more even though it belongs to you? I heard it back here. Na your name. There you go, Stacy. You get to preach next week. Your name. What doesn't smell but tastes great? Your tongue. So you see, riddles, by the time we get to the answer, we're like, well, duh, I knew that. 
these people posed a question to Jesus as a riddle. Which brings us to wonder, if we had questions for Jesus, how would we ask them? Would we ask them directly and straight up and say, Jesus, is the resurrection really real? That's what these people wanted to know, but that's not what they asked. Or would we approach Jesus like a child asking for candy before dinner? Can, can I um, maybe, maybe could, could I have a piece of candy before dinner? We might go to Jesus with, uh, Jesus, this, um, I don't really know how to ask this. this. This whole resurrection thing, what, can you tell me what it means? Would we approach it timidly like that? Or would we walk up to Jesus in a demanding way and say, I don't get it, Jesus, you're just going to have to fix this for me. How would we ask the question? The way we ask a question often speaks volumes of why we're asking a question, as it does here. The people who asked this question of Jesus asked it in a way that implied they didn't care about the answer. They weren't really interested in the answer. What they really wanted was to trick Jesus into proving that they were right or that Jesus was wrong. So who are these people asking this riddle? To understand the riddle, we kind of have to understand the people in the context of the time. There are, are two elite groups throughout Scripture that we see Jesus often encountering. And we hear a group called the Pharisees the most. We, we, we hear that anytime in Scripture, this group called the Pharisees, more commonly than, than we do this other group called the Sadducees. Both of these people, these groups of people, were educated, rich, powerful, affluent people. And they were what we might classify as parties today. Similar, but not identical, to what we call political parties. We have classifications today, we all know this, of conservative and liberal political views. We have classifications also when it comes to interpreting the Bible of conservative or progressive interpreting the Bible or Christian practices. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees correlate similarly to those classifications, not in the way that we would define them today, but just the concept of those classifications. And the difference between these two groups boiled down to their view of Scripture. Now, to understand the view of Scripture that these two groups have, we also need to have a semblance of an understanding of a societal understanding of resurrection at the time. Resurrection, the idea of resurrection, is not something that just hit the scene of humanity with Jesus' resurrection. It had been around for millennia. I don't know if it's humanity's fear of dying or fascination of life after death or what, but there have always been some sort of concept of resurrection. So we're going to break down the differences between these two people while trying to grasp a little bit of that concept, their concept of resurrection. Now here's a word of warning. Theological textbooks about this thick abound on this particular topic. So I'm going to try to give you the Cliff Notes version. You're welcome, but hang in with me. So we have this, this group of people called the Pharisees. The Pharisees are a religious and political group but they lean more towards the religious aspect than the political aspect. And they subscribed to uh, belief in authoritative scriptures of the law, which is the first five books of the Bible. 
They also believed what we call the prophets, the writing of the prophets in the Old Testament was also authoritative scripture. And they also believed in this thing called the oral tradition, meaning there were some teachings of God that had been handed down orally but not yet written down. But those three categories were authoritative as far as, as, far as revealing God's will and God's ways. Now they believed those three together, while they did not in, in no way, shape, form, or fashion specifically spell out resurrection, step one, step two, step three, and, and explain in, in black and white words what resurrection is, they realized those three categories or those three topics didn't do that, but there was enough evidence to believe in some sort of resurrection. One of the things that they cite is the um, Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. Most of us are familiar with the story of Ezekiel. He has this vision and there's dry bones in a valley and they start getting up and walking. It's kind of gory actually. But they use that kind of as a, a semblance of, oh, there really may be some concept of resurrection. So that's the Pharisees. Then we have the Sadducees. They too were a religious and a political group, but they leaned a little bit more towards the political side. And they accepted only those first five books of the Bible as authoritative, meaning the law. Those were the only scriptures in what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that they ascribed to as authoritative. They didn't believe the prophets were authoritative. They didn't believe in this oral tradition. And in those first five books, there was no literal mention of resurrection. And so, therefore, they rejected this idea of some sort of resurrection. They were sad, you see, because they had no hope in resurrection. Now, who cares? Thank you for hanging in there with that historical theological lesson. Um, I could tell you're fascinated by that lesson, and I'm glad you sat through it. But why does it matter? Why does it matter? It is the Sadducees who are asking Jesus this riddle. And the riddle is there's this woman who was married to seven men, not at the same time. She was married to one, he died, married to another, he died, and on and on it went. And, and really what Jesus is doing, what they're doing there is pulling from their very laws that they believe don't say anything about resurrection. That's another sermon in and of itself. So they present this question to Jesus. They say all seven of these people were married to this woman. They died, then she died, and here's their question. Whose wife will she be when God raises people from the dead? The irony of that is they don't believe in resurrection. So why are they asking Jesus this question to begin with? Are they doubting their own beliefs? Are they hoping maybe to be proven wrong that they might actually have some hope of resurrection? Or are they trying to trick Jesus? Why are they asking it to begin with? So what can we learn from their question and Jesus' response? Let's look at Jesus' response first. Notice first what Jesus didn't do. We can often read scripture and learn just as much from what Jesus didn't do as we can from what Jesus did do when we're reading scripture. Jesus didn't blurt out, you fools, what a dumb question. 
He also didn't say condescendingly, I'm no idiot. I know you're trying to trick me. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus also didn't dismiss it. He knew it was kind of a dumb question. He knew the answer. He knew what they were trying to do. But he didn't just dismiss it or ignore it. Jesus responded graciously. Now the response may sound a little odd to us. A little wordy, a little odd. But in Jesus' response, he's essentially saying, God has a longer term perspective than you humans do. And God is a lot more concerned about the living than the dying. He goes on and he says, people in this age, meaning in this earthly life, will be married or not be married. He's not talking about marriage in particular. He's talking about in this earthly life, people will be married, not be married. People will have jobs. People will pay bills. It's part of it. People will be worried about survival. Reproduction will happen. It's the, it's the, the literal carnal life of life on earth that Jesus is talking about when he says in this age. Literal earthly life. Physical life. But then the resurrection, things will be different. He's not saying that you won't recognize your spouse or your loved ones, although you may wish you didn't recognize them. He's not saying that you won't recognize them when, when, when you get to heaven. He's not necessarily saying that. He's simply saying our human finite minds cannot grasp, fully grasp what resurrection will be like. Now there are attempts in the Bible to describe it. Uh, streets of gold and all of those things, but quite frankly, those are attempts to describe something that is simply indescribable. The point of Jesus that Jesus is making is not so much what it will be like, but that it is about hope. That there is a hope of resurrection. And Jesus summed it up with this, the Lord isn't the God of the dead, but the God of the living that means everyone is alive as far as God is concerned. No one can actually explain what resurrection looks like. We try, but we can't. Resurrection is about hope. And then we couple this with Jesus' resurrection. If God can literally, physically raise Jesus to new life, then God can raise us out of our brokenness, out of our hopelessness, out of our darkness and despair into new life. We can't explain it step by step, but we have the hope of it. What we see in Jesus' response is that God doesn't expect us to fully and completely be able to understand it. What we see in Jesus' response is that it is okay to have questions. Some people have been told that if they question their faith or they question the Bible or they question religious leaders or have questions about resurrection, I mean folks it's a hard concept. It is what it is. And some people have been told that if you question it then you must be questioning your faith or denying God. I've used this word before. That's called a bunch of hooey. Because when we are asking questions we're having a conversation with God. I am convinced that few things thrill God more than when we actually have a conversation with God. 
If we are asking questions, that means God's working on us. Teachers, what is there no such thing as? A dumb question, right? No such thing as a dumb question. Jesus' response shows to them shows that Jesus loved and respected them. Even when they came at him with a question to trick him. He didn't belittle them for their ignorance or for having an incorrect understanding or an inaccurate view. Jesus' response shows us that we can be accepting of views of others. Jesus knew they were wrong, but he also knew that if he responded with a closed mind or some sort of chastisement, that would hinder any further communication lines. He knew that if he responded by shutting them down, he would not be opening the doors for them to receive God's love. And what can we learn from their question? Again, no such thing as a dumb question. But we can also learn that some things in this faith journey are just hard. Some things in this faith journey just don't have black and white answers. Some things are just difficult to understand, and that's okay. If everything had a black and white answer, we wouldn't need faith. We also learn from these people who are asking questions what their motivation was. Their motivation wasn't pure. It was selfish. Their motivation for asking the question was rooted in their desire to be proven right. Not from a desire to learn, but a desire to be proven right. Maybe there's a lesson for us about humanity there. Perhaps when entering into dialogue with others about topics that we think we're right about, we do damage if our motivation isn't just to listen and to respect them and to try to learn how they got there. We do damage when our motivation is to prove that we're right and they're wrong. There's one more verse that we didn't read. It's left out of our section of reading. But there's one more verse that goes back to the Pharisees. You remember what the Pharisees believe. They believe there is a resurrection. So they're standing by watching this interaction. And the very next verse that we didn't read, verse 39, says this. Some of the Pharisees said, Teacher, you have given a good answer. Why do they like the answer? It proves they're right. So they're standing by observing the whole scene and saying, Aha, he's on our side. We find out later that he wasn't. Now, doesn't that sound like something humans would do? You're in church. Doesn't that sound like something humans would do? So who are you in that story? Are you the Sadducees trying to get Jesus to prove that you're right about something? Are you the Sadducees trying to make sure everybody knows that Jesus is on your side? Are you the skeptical one about Jesus asking questions of something that you just can't make sense of? 
Can you sense Jesus welcoming your question? Not laughing at you or condemning you for asking it, but entering into a conversation with you. Can you sense that? Are you the Pharisees? Who are in the background saying, score one for me, Jesus is on my side. Or is it possible that we can find it within ourselves to be like Jesus in this story? To graciously and lovingly respond to things and to people whom we just don't understand. To extend a listening ear and an open heart to those who may struggle with faith, with resurrection, with belief belief in Jesus, with differing views or opinions. Can we find it within ourselves to be that person? They came to Jesus with a riddle. And Jesus riddled them right back. Maybe there's a lesson for us in this. May we meet people where they are. May we try to speak their language. And then let God's Holy Spirit do the work that only God's Holy Spirit can do. Can we find it within ourselves to be that kind of person? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll read the only story in scripture about Jesus' childhood, and we'll face the question, how can we continue to grow in Christ when the world tugs at us? See you soon on First Words with First Farragut United Methodist Church.